0: We've been moving through, slow and steady, through the book of Revelation um, and looking at, often, the four main views or ways of interpreting Revelation. We're at Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, and maybe, I don't know, maybe this is, uh, for me it's strange to think about the fact that maybe not a generation ago, but two generations ago in some Christian churches, this place would have been packed out for today because it was so controversial what your pastor is potentially going to say about this topic. And so it shows you just how much the um, intensity needle has shifted here. You're probably looking at this if you've read ahead and being like, okay, I don't know, interesting. This was a jugular issue that many churches split over in the last hundred years. So here we go, Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6. Just these six verses. This is John speaking. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years was ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. So a thousand years, thousand years. Everything's being centered around a thousand years, which is um, a millennium, and this is known as the passage that teaches about the millennium. But there's actually three views. We're going to talk about all those views today. And why, kind of the evidence for them, why does each view land where they do, and the relative weakness of each view. And then you can come to your own decision. I'll share with you where I'm at at the end of the message. But there are three ways Christians have understood this period known as the millennium. The first view is called premillennialism. How many of you have heard of premillennialism before? Okay, so some people, that's good. So premillennialism is the view that Jesus will return, his second coming, literally coming again, is going to happen before the millennium. So the return of Jesus is pre-the millennium. And Jesus is going to come at his second coming to bring an end to a period known as the Great Tribulation and establish... A reign of a thousand years where there's going to be peace and prosperity because Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem. And all of the nations have, have been subjected to the authority of Jesus. Now he is reigning on earth just like he's currently reigning in heaven. Now, there are many arguments and tomes written on each view of why the views land here. I'm gonna share what I think are the top two, uh, sometimes just one, but usually two or three best arguments, strongest arguments for each view. But if you want more readings, I can give you more, and you can do a deep dive on this for years if you want. Um, One of the most basic ways that this view gets established, and it's very, very strong, is simply to read it as sequentially happening after verse 19 when we see Jesus coming back. So if Revelation is more or less a chronological unfolding in order of events leading up to Jesus' return, and then what happens after? Then chapter 20 happens after chapter 19, Jesus comes back, and then there's an establishment of a millennium. And for a lot of people, that, that's really airtight. Like, that's a solid argument. And, and, and you, can, you can absolutely read Revelation like that. You have Jesus coming back after a series of events, Revelation 6 through 17, right? You've got the, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments and, and usually pre not always, but often. See, all of those happening during the Great Tribulation. Jesus comes back with the armies of heaven, establishes a millennial reign. So that's one big, super strong argument. The second one is, there seem to be a lot of Old Testament prophecies concerning how God's Messiah is going to rule the nations from Israel and from Jerusalem um, that haven't been fulfilled. And so they infer from that God has prophesied these things to happen. They haven't, therefore, they're going to happen in the future. One of the most famous ones is Isaiah 55, sorry, 65, where God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, "'See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. "'The former things won't be remembered, nor will they come to mind. "'Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days.'" or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought to be a mere child, and the one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed." Notice what's being communicated. There's going to be a new heavens and new earth. It's not going to be like the current age, but there's still death, right? Someone who dies at 100 will be thought of in that context as like, oh man, like, they were just like little. So there's this expansion of life and health and wellness. So we're seeing, this can't be referring to a new heavens and new earth fully established, so the argument goes, as we see in Revelation 21 and 22, because in that context, there is no death. But in this context, it seems like there is death. And other other verses, and there's some on your handouts, but I'll just go to the Daniel one, where God is going to set up a kingdom on earth that won't be destroyed, and it won't be left to someone else and it will crush all the other kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. Well, that hasn't happened yet. Ergo, this has got to be after Jesus returns. And lastly, and this is a really strong argument, does anybody look around the world right now, just, just even right now, and think, oh, um, well, no, sorry, let me start that a different way. In the millennium, what happens to Satan? Satan. You just say it, he's bound. he's bound and he's imprisoned. Double whammy. So he's bound and he's imprisoned. So the premillennialists millennialists will say, well, that makes sense because Christ is going to rule and Christ will not give Satan any um, authority at that time to go about and live out Satan's mission. But we see Satan's mission and we see Satan's mission... Of deceiving the nations, deceiving people, leading people into death and destruction, tempting people into anti God ways of living and being. We've seen that happen for the last 2,000 years. So if that's gonna stop, it's gonna have to probably stop in the future. Now, again, lots of arguments for this. I think those are the three strongest. Now, what's the criticism of this view? Well, I'm gonna have you just put a placeholder here because the amillennial view, which we'll get to last, is kind of a comprehensive criticism of this view. And so when we're talking about amillennialism, that is the criticism against this view. But this view is very strong, it is very popular, it is very challenging to take, it, take down. And even uh, theologians and scholars who lean in a slightly different direction, they absolutely admit, they would, uh, they would never die in the hill of saying premillennialism is not biblical or doesn't have a solid biblical grounding. Very strong view. Second view, not so strong. Just going to be honest, keeping it real. Postmillennialism. So, the first premillennialism is Jesus is going to come back before a millennium of peace to establish an, a millennium of peace and prosperity. Postmillennialism is the view that Jesus is going to return after a more or less millennial period of peace and prosperity. So this is completely the opposite. Jesus is going to come to establish versus Jesus is going to come in response to a global diffusion of massive... Christian influence in the world. Now, I'm going to say this twice because this is important to kind of get. This view isn't based so much on connecting specific prophecies as it is about what I would call theological inferences. And this is what I mean by that. The postmillennialist starts on the premise God is powerful. Valid. Jesus is the God-man. Valid. Jesus has now been um, established in his ascension as Lord of heaven and earth. Powerful. All authority has been given to me, Jesus said. Now he's poured out his spirit into the church, and he said, go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In Acts 1:8, he says, you're going to be my witnesses. Not just here, but to the ends of the earth. And then he taught his disciples to pray. When they're like, Jesus, teach us to pray. He says, this is how you should pray. God, your kingdom come on earth as it currently is in heaven. Now the post-millennialists will say, the Great Commission... Empower, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now in working in and through the church and one of the core prayers of the Christian church is to be God, would you establish your heavenly kingdom on earth like right now just like it's established in the heavenly places and the post millennialists will say so that's not like Jesus is equipping us and empowering us for a mission that's just going to kind of like peter along like the post-millennialist says, how low is your view of God? How low is your view? How meager is your understanding of what can happen when the Spirit of God changes lives, not just in individuals, but in families, communities, societies, nations? And so it looks at the big redemptive scope moving from the Old to the New Testament, and it says there's going to be a trajectory of progress, that as the gospel goes out with power, as people surrender their lives to Jesus, things are going to get better and not just in a um, individual souls are saved, but communities are transformed and nations are transformed. And so it might not happen overnight, but over a long haul, there's going to be a progress of the gospel and the gospel's power, which is going to lead up to a millennium, about a thousand years. They don't necessarily get, none of these views get locked into precisely a thousand years. But there's going to be a period where things are incredible. Not perfect, but the Christian influence will be so dominant globally that so many issues, economically, relationally, socially, educationally, they're going to be more or less solved, and then Jesus is going to return and fully establish, kind of put put the cherry on top, as it were, and complete the kingdom of God on earth. Now again, this view is built on the inference of these big commission themes given by Jesus to his church, and the assumption that Jesus wouldn't have tasked us for a mission that was essentially going to fail. And this view was very, very popular in the 18th and 19th century because there was two broad social phenomenons, the global colonization of Christianity and the Industrial Revolution and the industrialization of the Western world which in very short order was starting to lead to leaps in technological progress, educational progress, and crime was going down, and poverty was being addressed in a way that it hadn't before, and there was new ways of envisioning how you could live in the world. And people put these together and said, we are on the cusp of a Christian golden age. It's not maybe another hundred years, and Christianity is going to have... uh, um, positively influence and come to dominate in the best way possible uh, the, the, the worldview of, of most people on earth. And you know, and people had the timelines differently. Maybe it'll be 100 years. Maybe it'll be 300. But it was within view until something happened near the start of the 20th century. And then post-millennialism and confidence in post-millennialism took a nosedive such that you will hardly ever come across a Christian post-millennialist today. It's very rare. They're out there, scholars mostly, but the average evangelical Christian is not, um, not swayed by post-millennialist arguments. What happened at the start of the 20th century? What's that? First World War. We were all living with an idea that human ingenuity through reason, kind of a fusion of Christianity and the enlightenment, that there was a trajectory to history where we're going to progress, things were going to get better, more educated, leverage technology to eliminate poverty and make the world an increasingly better place. And then you have in fairly short order, historically speaking, two massive world wars where people realized this world is not getting better. Like this is horrific the way that we have turned this technology into a way to wreak havoc. And so that led to a whole bunch of philosophical movements that sought to undercut this idea of inevitable progress. And part of the victim of that was post-millennialism. Today, this is the least popular of the views, but I would also argue it's biblically the weakest, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, Because it is increasingly difficult to imagine how a global Christian golden age could materialize any time on the horizon. And again, it doesn't mean that everybody's a Christian. We're just talking like, just localize it to Nelson. Like, can you honestly, obviously with God, all things are possible. Great. I'm just saying, does it seem like we're on a trajectory that in a hundred years, 80, 85% of Nelsonites aren't just like, cultural Christians, or they don't use it, like they're actually like fully devoted followers of Jesus. And we actually have a massive infrastructure issue because there are so many Christians in Nelson, we don't have enough spaces to host the kind of worship and engagement events that we, we need to. 8,000 people, 9,000 people throughout the week trying to get together to worship. We're holding multiple worship services across all these sites every day of the week because doing it all on Sunday morning... That's just not even legit. That went out the door when you got to like 3,000 people. And so this view just doesn't seem possible in many Christians' imagination now. Now, what's a criticism of this view? Well, I hope part of it is obvious, which is that this idea of taking these few verses together and saying, Jesus has commissioned us for this mission, so it's going to be wildly successful, it actually doesn't square with other things Jesus said that Christians should expect, and it doesn't square with what most of the New Testament teaches Christians to expect as the Gospel goes out into the world. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that you can have peace. In this world you will have trouble, and that word is persecution or distress or tribulation, but take heart, not for long. In a few generations, it'll all be good. There's going to be Christians everywhere." Yeah, that's not how the verse ends. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Your life, your witness is going to be marked by tribulation. And nowhere in the New Testament, before the establishment of a new heavens and new earth, after Jesus' return, is there anything close to a Christian Golden Age promised? In fact, in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven, what have the nations gathered to do? Do you remember? Make war against him. They're not like, finally, Jesus, here we are. We're ready. We filled the cup like 85% up. We're, we're, our, we're, we're rolling out the red carpet. No, the nations have conspired to come together to resist in one last final stand. So it seems to go, although it's well-intended, and you can see the optimism there, it seems to actually clash against the actual biblical witness. Now you can argue that this view has been sort of morphed into the modern kind of progressive social justice trajectory where we kind of, there's still pockets of the culture that think, well. People are perfectible, society is perfectible. If we just keep educating, if we just keep leveraging technology in good ways, then we can create a perfect world. Obviously, you we know, God out of it. But there, that, that movement is sort of based, is, is sort of a, a bastardized grandchild of this post-millennial idea. But uh, the criticisms against this view are, are mighty and significant. And it's not a very popular view. Can you a stretch break or can you do one more? <laughs> Third view. And as I teach this view, remember, this is, in a sense, an, uh, this entire view is a criticism of the premillennial view. This is amillennialism or amillennialism. And the A, like it does in the term atheist, refers to non. Um, so non-theist, atheist. Non-millennialist is a millennialist, which is not the best description because a as you'll see, actually do believe in a millennium. They just understand it symbolically and then figuratively. So it's not quite fair to call them a millennialist, but I understand where the title comes from. So here's what an a millennialist believe: They believe that we're in the millennium right now. The millennium started when Jesus ascended and the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost that began the rule of Christ in this world in and through the church from the heavenly places. And it will end when Jesus comes back. Now, it's already been 2,000 years, so we're already way past the millennium. But amillennialists don't worry about that because they're like, we don't think it's wise to take a number from a highly symbolic book where almost every other number that's already occurred in the book is highly figurative, and just say, no, that actually means like a thousand years. It likely more means a massive age or time frame that's going to end with Jesus' second coming and the final judgment, and then a full establishment of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So this view does not believe that there's going to be a period before Jesus comes back where there's going to be this, you know, obvious, wow, here was a golden age, like the post-millennialists believe, but nor do they believe that millennium is going to just happen and kick in when Jesus comes again. They see us as living in the millennium and the reign right now. We are reigning with Christ right now. And we are reigning in the heavenly places while on earth God's will is being done, but there is a steady um, there are steady forces of resistance where God's kingdom obviously hasn't come on earth as it is in heaven, but his will is being done in heaven and the church is reigning. And so what we understand and what we experience in this millennium is it's sort of like a half reigning of Jesus. He fully reigns in the heavenly places, but when he comes again, he'll expand that reign to the earthly places. And what an amillennialist does with all those scriptures that speak about the new heavens and new earth is they say, oh yeah, those are going to come true in the future. Jesus is going to reign from Jerusalem, but it's just going to happen when he establishes the new heavens and the new earth. And they have some really interesting and pretty solid reasoning behind working around even scriptures like Isaiah 65, which seem to infer that in that age, people are still going to die. They're like, no, no, no. There's, um, I can give you some good articles that I read from a amillennialists who say, yeah, that's a misreading of that text. So they say there is going to be a golden age that will continue forever when Jesus returns. So what's the evidence for this view? Well, they would look at it and say, there are a lot of New Testament verses that talk about the church reigning with Jesus right now. Not will reign in the future. They do reign right now. Ephesians 4, verse 6, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is not the heavenly realms, is it? but it says we, like the church. So in a way that we can't understand, that is mysterious, He has elevated us to a place where we reign, not fully, but in this strange way, we're seated with Christ. At the start of Revelation, John says that this is a revelation from Jesus, and in verse six he says, who has made us to be a kingdom, not to be part of the kingdom, we are a kingdom. So where the church goes in the name of Jesus to spread the gospel and empower people with the love and grace of God, there goes the kingdom and there goes the rule and reign of God. So Christ is ruling and reigning through his church in real ways. And within those spheres, some of those promises that come from the Old Testament are being fulfilled. But one of the biggest ones probably, because you're like, wait a second, what about that whole Satan thing? Like, Satan's bound and imprisoned. Like, if we're in the millennium now, like look around you. How could anyone argue that Satan is bound and imprisoned? He's not he's no longer deceiving the nations. Like, really? Like for a lot of people, that would just be like immediate dismissal of this view. But 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 the millennialist says, look in Mark chapter 3. Jesus is casting out demons. And the religious leaders say, oh, yeah, we know why he's doing that. We know why he can do that because he's the prince of demons. It's by Beelzebub's power. It's by the power of Satan that he casts out these other demons. And Jesus says, okay, uh, thought experiment. Uh, How could Satan drive out Satan? And, like, why would he? Because a kingdom divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. So if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand and his end has come. So he's just playing out the logic. If you think I'm secretly working for the devil by battling the forces of the devil in the world, it actually doesn't even make any sense. Because I'm not leading people astray. I'm pushing them towards God, but countering the forces of evil. So how would I be doing the devil's work? And then he says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. So he says, what you're seeing here when I cast out demons is like a strong man who's gone into a house, bound up the owner of the house, and is now plundering what he wants. And that's what I'm doing. I'm taking back what is mine against Satan. And that word, tying him up, is the word, the exact same word that is used in Revelation 20, that Satan was bound for a thousand years. And then he was imprisoned. And for the amillennialists, they say we would never want to say Satan's influence in the world is non-existent, but Satan, they would argue, has been bound and imprisoned during this millennial time to no longer totally deceive the nations and keep the gospel from going out into the world. So Satan's influence has been limited in a severe way so that the kingdom of God can break into not just individual hearts, but communities' hearts and nation's hearts. And so they see, and oh, yeah, sorry, And in Mark 3, what Jesus is obviously doing is saying, what you're noticing me do right now when I'm binding, when I'm casting out these demons is I'm binding the devil. And so a millennialist say, well, if Satan was bound, if we see in this vision Satan being bound for a long period of time, That must have started during Jesus' ministry. Then, at some point before the second coming, Satan will be released for a short period of time. Then the end will come. So that's how they read that. It's a little bit more flexible, but the reasoning is quite interesting, and it lines up with a lot of the uh, original usage of the words in Mark 3 and Revelation 20. Now, the criticism of this view, again, probably pretty self-evident. It's very spiritualized and for some people it's so spiritualized that it sort of doesn't land enough in real life in the sense that well we've kind of said yeah jesus reigns in the heavens but we um what about these prophecies that talk about god's messiah making a tangible difference in this world and the amillennialists will say he will but all of those refer to after the final judgment and the establishment of a new heavens and new earth Some will also say, okay, if we're in the millennial reign of Christ, is it accurate to describe Satan and its influence in the world right now as being bound and imprisoned? Those seem like very strong words. And when you look out into the world, it doesn't seem like there's much of a governator on the forces of evil. So that would be a criticism that comes out of lived experience. Um And amillennialism also believes that many of the specific promises given to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament have been transferred to the church. And so when you come to Romans 11, that seems to infer ethnic Israel has a special role to play in the end times, not just the church, but ethnic Israel as separate from the church, premillennialists will say that fits into our view, but it doesn't fit into your view. But the spirit through Paul makes a big deal about that in Romans 11. And amillennialists are like, yep, that's valid. That's a, that's a bit of an Achilles heel for us. Okay. Coming in for a landing. You've made it. Congratulations. Good job. So I'm not at all convinced by post millennialism, And honestly, de- <laughs> depending on who I read, I, I can flip-flop between amillennialism and premillennialism. I read stuff by one author and I'm like, Oh, that is a good argument. Yep, I think that's checkmate. And then I'll listen to the counter and I listen to people who are very gracious and know their stuff. And uh, I kind of flip-flop a little bit. Although in this issue, I do think the weight of evidence, oof, it tilts me a little bit towards the amillennial view, but very, like just, just a smidge, just a, just a, just a little, berp, if, I had to, if I had to get off the fence, I would very hesitatingly, Asterix all-qualifying humility say, I think I would lean in that direction. But both premillennial and amillennialism have some really solid, interesting arguments that are very challenging, at the best presentation of them, to refute. That being said, I'm really glad that I'm not a part of the Christian generation that drew lines across these things and said, if you're not a premillennialist, if you don't have this precise understanding of end times theology, You're actually not welcome in this church. You cannot be a member. We're not going to move into mission and ministry with you. And all of the best people across all three views, and by best I mean most mature and learned, will all say, this is interesting to debate. It's fascinating. It can bolster our faith and confidence in Scripture in lots of ways and discipleship, but it shouldn't be an issue that Christians, um, that becomes a wedge between Christians to just get along And it shouldn't be something that interferes with Christians moving forward in mission together. Because every Christian agrees, we are called to spread the gospel, to be a faithful witness to Jesus. Jesus is coming back. We look forward to that time. And, you know, some people have jokingly said, there's like a fourth view being added, which is panmillennialism, which is, it's all going to pan out in the end, so they're just going to make the main thing the main thing. And I think there's wisdom there to have humility. So you can dive into this stuff, but also recognize there are really solid biblical Christians who have said, I'm strong here, I'm convictionally here, but I love and appreciate my brother who's an amillennialist or who's a premillennialist or even who's a postmillennialist. Now, how do you take a message like this and make it practical? Super easy. You leverage all the best points of all of the views and apply it to your own discipleship. Revelation is like a massive expansion of the spiritual warfare worldview that Paul gives in Ephesians 6 where he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. How can each of these views help us in that calling to put on the full armor of God? Well, post-millennialism, that the world's going to get better and progress and then Jesus is going to come, that can help us stay rooted in a Christ-centered, not man-centered, in a Christ-centered optimism that real, substantial, kingdom-bringing change and transformation is possible, not just at the level of individuals, but community and nations. We should not have a small view where we're like, yeah, Jesus has commissioned us, he's given us his spirit, but probably doesn't matter if we tell people about Jesus, it's just kind of, I don't know, it's like just drops in the ocean. It's like, no, we serve a big God who is uh, marching out to make war through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, empowering his people. So you shouldn't have a small, stunted imagination of what is possible for your life or for the life of your community or your marriage or your church or your nation. There's an optimism that's rooted in the power of the gospel that we can leverage and we should integrate into our life. The premillennialists, on the other hand, do help us to prepare, to prepare for and not be surprised when we encounter very serious anti-Christian forces within our culture and society. The premillennialists help us to prepare for the fact that, no, it's not just gonna be share with Jesus with people, more and more people become Christians. They get added, to they get added, everything gets better and better and rosier and rosier and easier and easier. No, in this world we're going to have tribulation. And almost all of Jesus' letters to the, first church, to the churches um, in Revelation are about staying faithful even though you're going to die. And so we need that premillennial voice that says, you should not expect heaven this side of heaven. You should expect to a greater or lesser extent that life is war. And you're going to have to do battle every day. So don't become a Christian, get two years down the line and say, well, this is kind of hard. This sucks. My life isn't working out. God isn't just facilitating my plans to make my life better and better and better and better like a post-millennialist just pulled down to the individual level. The pre-millennialist is like, yeah, no duh. The question isn't, is your life getting better? It's, are you staying faithful to Jesus even when times are brutal? That's your calling. It's not success by worldly measures. It's faithfulness to Jesus. To him who overcomes, Jesus says again and again and again and again at the start of Revelation. And overcoming means being faithful until you're burned to death, until you're tortured to death, until you're beheaded to death until you starve to death because you've been cut off economically or socially. And how does the amillennialist help us? Well, they help us to accept that most of the time in our lived experience, our, our walking with God is going to feel like, in some areas of my life, God's power is inbreaking, and it's undeniable. It's fleeting. It's, it's not always tangible and real in the way that I would like it to be, but... Jesus is my Lord and God is at work, but also there's a counter-pressure that I almost always feel. And so at any given point, while there are highs that are really high and low that are really low, a lot of my Christian life is just struggling with little highs, little lows, back and forth because God's Spirit is at work in me. He is ruling and reigning in my heart but there are also forces in my heart and in the world pressing upon me that are tempting me away from faithfully following Jesus. So my life kind of feels like a weird mishmash between Jesus is Lord, but sin's power still reigns in me in certain ways. And the amillennialist says, yeah, so keep following Jesus, allow his kingdom to be established in you, but don't think that you're going to experience some kind of capital D deliverance from every hardship and power in, negative power in your life, this side of heaven, the Christian life is a war between um, the wheat and the weeds. So, optimism, Christ centered optimism of the post millennialist, realistic preparation, and a um, stealing ourselves from the premillennialist view, and an acceptance. Setting our expectation that if I'm expecting life to be always amazing or terrible all the time, that's going to keep me from being tempted into too much triumphalism or too much despair and going to kind of set me in the right expectation bandwidth. Why don't you stand and I'm going to send you off with a benediction.